in 1 Peter. I did tell you that chapter 1 would take a long time to go through, and I wasn't kidding. Okay? We're only in verse 5. This is our, fir- our fourth sermon. It's, t- it's because there's so much in this chapter. It's a very, very rich chapter, and we need to do it justice. So if you'd open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. I'm going to read the first five verses. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So this is our passage for today, verse 5. We are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. This is a powerful verse about uh, the, the subject of assurance of salvation and God's role in making sure that we make it to glory. And so it's entitled Assure, uh, Eternal Security. Eternal Security. Some people like to say once saved, always saved. There's nothing wrong with these terms, but they do need to be defined and understood carefully. Uh, when we mean, when we say once saved, always saved, you, we, we need to understand we need to be saved, okay? We actually do need to be saved to be always saved. And some people have taken that first part rather lightly thinking that, oh, yeah, I prayed the prayer, you know, way back when. Or, you know, I did the deed or whatever. Or they've they've thought that salvation was just going to church or they thought that salvation was being a good person. Folks, that doesn't get you saved. Okay? You need to be saved from being a good person. Do you understand? Because you're not a good person. You're a sinner. Okay? It's a lie that you're a good person. I mean, on our level, sure. Okay? If, if I was your judge, then you'd all be good people in my book, okay? Because I know the plague of my own heart. So compared to me, you're all good people. How does that make you feel? Do you have assurance of salvation now because, because I have said that you're good? No, I hope not. You see, but if Jesus Christ was standing here and I was sat down there with you lot, 
he would be saying, none of us are good. He called his own disciples evil. If you being evil know how to give good gifts to those whom you love, how much more does God? So his idea of goodness is far, far too high for us to attain. We must be saved from our sins. We need to be forgiven by the judge. And for him to forgive us, somebody else has got to take what what judgment should rightly come upon us. And Jesus has done that. And Jesus has gladly done that for us because of his love for us. God has accepted that because of his love uh, for his son and his regard for his son. And therefore, anyone who has trusted in Jesus Christ, God has justly ruled that that person shall not come into condemnation. They are saved. Are you saved that way? If you're saved that way, then you're always saved. And I'll try to explain, at least within the limits of this sermon, why that is the case. Now, having started that way, I do need to say this. There may be some here who believe that a person may forfeit their salvation. Not forfeit it because, you know, they forgot to pray today or they forgot to read the Bible today or, you know, they they committed a sin. Because let's face it, if that was the basis that uh, our, our assurance was resting on, then we might as well give up right now, okay? But they would say, no, but a person can decide that, oh, you know what? I don't believe in God anymore. I don't believe the Bible's the word of God anymore. I don't believe Jesus died for my sins anymore. And walk away from the faith. Okay? And people, we've all seen people who've done that, professed that, yes? And those people, therefore, can forfeit, can lose their salvation. And now, that is not an unreasonable position to hold. It is not the position that I hold. And I'm trying to give you reasons today for that. But it is not an unreasonable position. It's a perfectly uh, good position to hold. It does, however, have some problems, which I shall try to explain. The first thing, though, that uh, I want to kind of bring to your attention is that Peter here has linked God's protection of our inheritance or our salvation in verse 5 to the election that we have in uh, Christ Jesus and the Spirit and the Father in verse 2. He has also connected it to God's abundant mercy and the power 
and association with the resurrection of Jesus in verse 3. He has also connected it to the inheritance in verse 4, which is reserved for us. Do you see that? All of these things are a piece to the apostle Peter. Now, the fact that a person is connected to the resurrection of Jesus Christ means that they are connected in a strong spiritual way to Jesus Christ, the glorified Christ, the risen Christ, right here and now, and that's been done by the Holy Spirit of God. We are no longer connected to Adam. Now, somebody who hasn't trusted in Jesus is connected to Adam. As in Adam, all die, 1 Corinthians 15:22. But in Christ, all shall be made alive. Well, to be in Christ is to be connected to him, to be in his body, to be a participant in his resurrection glory. And Peter distinctly here makes that claim. We have a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, verse 3. So in that context, we are to understand verse 5, kept by the power of God. Kept by the power of God, which means we're kept in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're kept in God's abundant mercy. We are kept in that election that God the Father uh, elected us into. Now it does say we're kept by the power of God through faith, and I'm going to get to that in a minute. But do notice how we are kept here. And the, 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 it's a military term, by the way. It has to do with guarding. Okay? Now, if, if God is guarding us and guarding our salvation, then uh, nobody's going to get through and break in and, uh, you know, steal us away from Christ. Especially because we are kept by the power of God. It's not that God's just watching over us with an eye to us, you see, and he's, he's, got, he's upholding the universe and busy doing a lot of other things, you see, but he's at least keeping an eye on us. It's not just that. It's that his power is extended in our direction, on our, in our benefit, to keep us saved. Now, there's an alternative to that. We could be kept by our power. So, being kept by our power, or a mixture maybe of God's power and our power, I think is rather problematical. Where is your assurance of salvation going to be if your salvation depends for a moment on your power, your ability, your performance. God takes you 90% of the way. Great. 
that's fantastic, that's gracious, but you know what? I am not capable of the extra 10% or 1%. It has to be all of grace. It has to be all of God. Or it's no use to me. And so, we need to understand Peter's meaning here. Yes, through faith. Yes, through faith. Because we are uh, sons and daughters of God. We are justified by God through faith. Through faith in Jesus Christ. You say, yeah, but, whoops. What about those people that have claimed to have faith and then they've walked away from the faith. I'm going to deal with that a little bit later because it's an important question. I would just remind you how I opened up the sermon though. What do we mean by saved? So keep that in mind as we, as we go through. Now to give you kind of a Another point of view on this, I'm going to read, if you don't mind, and just indulge me. If you, if you uh, think, oh, he's going to read one of these 300-year-old dead scholars again. And you'd be wrong, because this guy's been dead for more than that. All right, but uh, his name's Robert Layton. He was the Archbishop of Canterbury back when there actually used to be decent Archbishop of Canterbury's or Archbishops of Canterbury. I'm not sure which way you would put, you would say that. And he says this concerning uh, this verse. He says, Further, as it is a rich and pleasant country where our inheritance lies, and I'm updating the English here, It has also this privilege to be the only land of rest and peace free from all possibility of invasion. There is no spoiling of it and laying it waste and defacing its beauty by leading armies into it and making it its seat of war. No noise of drums or trumpets, no inundations of one people driving out another and sitting down in their possessions. In a word, there is nothing there subject to decay of itself, so neither is it in danger of fraud or violence. When our Savior speaks of this same happiness, uh, he uses the term in Matthew 6.20 that is called inheritance here, he calls treasure. He expresses the permanency of it by these two words, that it has neither moth nor rust in itself to corrupt it, nor can thieves break through and steal it. There is a worm at the root of all our enjoyments here. I love that term. There's a worm at the root of all our enjoyments here, corrupting causes within themselves. And besides that, they are exposed to injury without, from without which may deprive us of them. He talks about stately palaces that are built over decades and decades and burnt down overnight. He talks about those who have uh, amassed a great fortune and by some trick of the law 
or by uh, some sword or some thief have lost it all. And he closes by saying, nothing free from all danger but this inheritance which is laid up in the hands of God and kept in heaven for us. Nothing that we have down here is free from danger. But our salvation and our inheritance is free from danger because it's kept by God. And that's the general idea that Peter is trying to convey here, do you see? He has started his epistle and he's going to talk about suffering for Christ. He's going to talk about faithfulness and perseverance in the, in the fires of suffering. But he begins his epistle by assuring his reader that their salvation is secure. So that's Peter's meaning. You can see that uh, I used a big word for the second heading, exegetical reasons, okay? You can put a line through that. I've decided that we're going to skip it. All right, you're welcome. Because I've basically just given you the exegetical reasons, okay? Exegesis just means taking out what's there. I do, however, want you to turn to 1 Corinthians and chapter 1, if you would. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verses 8 and 9. And we're going to run a few references today because I do want to uh, bring home to you the, how this teaching of assurance of salvation, what it's based on. It's not just based on a couple of verses. It's based on what has happened to us in Christ, what God has done. So in 1 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9, Paul says here, let me back up here. I'll start in verse 4. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus, that you were enriched in everything by him, in all utterance and all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's his second coming. Who will also confirm you to the end, that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's God who is going to confirm us to the end. Do you see that? Just as I read earlier in the book of Philippians, we are confident of this very thing. He who has begun a good work in us will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. What are all these affirmations telling us? They're telling us that it's up to God to get us to the golden shore. It's his work, his effort, his power, his faithfulness that's behind it, not yours. Now, don't, I'm not getting you off the hook, okay? You know I don't try and get you off the hook, but today we're going to focus on the way that we can be assured that the hope that I spoke of last week is not a fading hope because it depends on us. 
but it's a real, gleaming, glorious hope that does not fade because it depends on God. So my second heading here is not exegetical reasons, which is a big, horrible word. It's theological reasons, which is a beautiful word. It really is. The word theological, the word theology, it should be a beautiful word to you. Okay? I know, I know that scholars have done their very best to make that uh, a kind of a glazed look over the eyes, deer of the headlights kind of a word. I understand that. And I have 60 volumes in my library of big, thick theologies that uh, would make your eyes glaze over. So I understand that, but I'm not talking here about that necessarily. I'm just talking about the teaching of the Bible that comes together to give you assurance, to give you hope, to tell you what the truth is that God has done for you. That's what I mean. So let's dive in and look at some of these uh, theological reasons for eternal security just briefly. The first one that I want to look at here is in Romans chapter 8. I can't look at all of them. There are very many of them. But look at, let's look at Romans chapter 8, which is a key text for this doctrine. It begins this way. Chapter 8, verse 1 of Romans. There is therefore now... Well... No condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. It says, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. But you have to understand what Paul means by that. He means that a Christian, somebody who has been born again, that they don't walk according to the flesh as their general rule of life. They walk in a spiritual way. It doesn't mean they're always spiritually minded, but it means that they have been born again, they have been changed, and you can see that, okay? But the first part of that verse says, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Well, when we speak of the word condemn, we're using judicial terminology. Do you understand? Judicial terminology. So here we're not talking about the power of God to keep us in grace. We're now talking about a decision of God. He has pronounced us saved, forgiven, and blessed in Christ, beloved in Christ as a judge. Now, the first thing that we need to understand about our salvation and about justification is that it's a judicial act. You see, God is just. Because if God is not just, he isn't anything. God loves justly. God rewards justly. God condemns justly. God is just. Justice controls, as it were, 
every other decision, everything that God does and is. Because if he is not absolutely just in every way that he deals with us, then he cannot be trusted. And he's unfair. And he has favorites. And the list just continues and we get... We get more and more unsure about the character of God. God is absolutely just. We can be absolutely sure. When we get to glory, the rewards that we will get are just rewards because God says they're just. That means that if somebody gets more than me, that's because God has justly decided that they've done more than me in serving the Lord. If somebody gets condemned because they've not trusted in Jesus, that's a just decision of God. If somebody gets condemned because they've not trusted in Jesus and lived a very wicked life, and so their condemnation is greater, that's because God's justice comes in and makes that decision. Therefore, there is no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. If you're in Christ Jesus, it's because God has made a decision concerning you as a judge before he's made a decision as a father. That means that your salvation, your right to heaven, your right to eternal life, which is based, of course, completely in the work of Christ and in the Father's grace, is a judicial decision. God can't go back on it. He can't make a decision as a judge and say, oh, hold on a minute, hold on, hold on, that was a a bit rash. You know, a few years ago, this person believed in me, but now this person, they had kind of struggling their Christian life, and therefore, we'll just uh, pretend that I didn't make that decision. We'll have to do that again. No, you can't do that with justice. Do you see? It was judged. The person was judged. Past, present, future. At the cross. And there is no double jeopardy. That's right. But there's more than that in Romans chapter 8. If you go to the end of Romans chapter 8, you'll see what I mean. Look at verse 31. Oh no, in fact, in fact, let's look at um, verse 28 through 30, this connection. We know that all things work together for good for those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew... He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Didn't condemn, he's not saying he predestined him to salvation. He's predestined him to be conformed to the image of, your, of his son. Okay, So all those that are saved are predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Do you understand that? That he might be the firstborn among many brethren. That means you're a brother, a sister of Christ. We, there's not a time when you don't become a son, of, uh, a brother, a sister of Christ. It's like God saying, okay, you're no longer a brother. 
I'm no longer your father. You, that, that, you can't, it doesn't work that way, folks, okay? It didn't work that way in the ancient world. It doesn't work that way today. It doesn't work that way. Moreover, whom he predestined, those he also called. Whom he called, he also justified. Whom he justified, those he also glorified. Have you been glorified yet? I hope not. Looking at, the, looking at you out here, you know, I certainly hope not. Okay. But you've been called, you've been justified, okay? You're going to be glorified. That means you are on the way to glorification, okay? No one's going to derail that because it's in God's power. Do you see the connection? You know, God's not making it up as he goes along. All right, what am I going to do now? They've trusted in Jesus and uh, I've, I've declared them forgiven. So now what's, what's next? Gabriel? You know, you know, he's not doing that. He's, the whole package has been designed. And you come into it when you come into Christ. And it's all by grace. It's all by God's grace. And it's assured by the power of God. Verse 31, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? This is a judicial thing. If God judicially is for you, who can be against you? Well, people can rant and rave and, you know, they can object. But as far as the judge is concerned, the decision's been made. He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay a charge against God's elect? Well, Peter talked about God's elect, didn't he? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Oh, so here's something else. Not only are you kept by the power of God and has a judicial decision been made uh, in your favor, but you also have Christ interceding for you. You are also, by the way, have the Holy Spirit interceding for you and given to you. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Or we shall. We can just walk away if we just... No. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, as it is written... For your sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And you are in Christ Jesus. You were put into Christ when you believed. You're no longer in Adam. So these theological reasons, they're, they're compounding. Jesus himself, in John 5, 24, says, He that believes in me, Okay, shall not come into condemnation, but has passed from death 
to life. Yes? Colossians speaks about the same thing. In fact, he says, he has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of his beloved son. That's been done by God on your behalf. Second Corinthians chapter 5 verse 17 says that you're a new creature in Christ. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. These are theological truths which you must consider when you're talking about your salvation. It's not just a, you know, yeah, but a person can decide not to, okay? Because it's not up to them. It has to do with what God has done and is doing. God cannot go back on his decision. He cannot make you, as he's adopted you into his family, he could not uh, unadopt you. He cannot remove his power that's upholding you. He cannot remove his decision to justify you. He cannot take you out of Christ and put you back, put you back in Adam because you're dead to that. He cannot interrupt his plan for you for glory just because you're struggling in the faith. Now, there are many other um, theological reasons that I could bring, but I, I can't detain you. I just want to look quickly at objections to eternal security. And so we'll go to two verses in particular quickly that people use. The first one's in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Verses 26 and 27. Therefore, Paul says, I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. Or a castaway, as the King James puts it. And people use that one. Well, if he can be cast away, even Paul thought he might be cast away. Doesn't that mean that he was in peril of perhaps losing his salvation? No, because he's not even talking about salvation in that text. He's talking about his ministry. Now, a person, yes, can be cast away from the ministry, but that's different than being cast away from Christ. He's not talking about that in this context. John chapter 10, perhaps the most common one that people go to. 
John chapter 10. Verse 27 and following. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Ah, the objector says, but it doesn't say anything about you getting out of the Father's hand. Yeah, but there's a failure to pay attention here. Okay? The first thing is, what is the context of this? How has Jesus described himself in this very passage? As the what? The good shepherd. Well, a good shepherd doesn't lose sheep. A good shepherd doesn't let a sheep go. Secondly, it says here, I give them eternal life. Well, he's not taking it away from them again. Okay? They shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father has given them to me. So again, we come back to what? Election. Do you see? These doctrines all have to be brought together in a consideration of our eternal security. We're saved by grace and we're kept saved by grace. We're kept saved by more than that too. We're kept saved by the power of God. We're kept saved by the decision of God. We're kept saved by the fact that we're in Christ. We're kept saved by the fact that we must experience glory. We're kept saved by the fact that we must stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And many other things could be added to this. So this passage is not a proof text at all. What, what about these people, though, who have, perhaps in our experience, they seem to be on fire, they seem to be believing the Lord, and now they deny him. What about that? I understand the, the, the difficulty at a, an experiential level of encountering people like that, but that cannot go against everything that I've just told you from the Word of God. Your conclusion is not to correct the Word of God, okay, just because of your experience. Your conclusion must be that those people were not real Christians. They were not really saved. In our Bible study this morning, we're in Revelation chapter 3, and I said it is very easy for somebody who is in a church environment to learn the biblical lingo, to learn how to feel spiritual, to know the language, to serve, to be a good person and all the rest of it, to lead Bible studies, to preach from the pulpit, and they're not saved. I once knew a Methodist preacher. Now, most Methodist preachers I'd have real problems with, but this guy, I knew him. He was a friend of mine, and he openly said, he says, for years I I was preaching, and I wasn't even saved myself. 
people can um, counterfeit the fruit of the Spirit. People by technique and by putting on a mask, they can convince themselves and other people that they're saved. They can't convince God, though. God knows the truth about them. So those people eventually, you know what? Peter himself will say, these people are just like pigs going back to the mire. Okay? Eventually the pig will go back to the dirt and the mud. And so a person who was not really saved, eventually it will show. That's good enough for me. That answers that objection. And so I conclude here by saying that we need to be completely sure that we are trusting in Christ and no one but Christ and nothing but the merits of Christ's work for our salvation. We need to understand that we need to be saved. It's not us impressing God by our good works. It's not us saying, yeah, I believe that Jesus died for me and now just look what a good person I am. Okay, Jesus and me together make a, a, a strong salvation team. No, you don't. You make damnation team, actually. Only Jesus and your trust and your faith in Jesus and what he's done for you equals salvation. Peter says we are kept by God's power, not by our power. So if you're in Christ, for all of the reasons and more reasons I can give you, you are eternally secure. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that uh, this word would not be misunderstood as condoning a false faith or taking advantage of your salvation. We know, Lord, that we all struggle with, uh, with the Christian life because we all struggle with, uh, with sin still, even though it's been forgiven. But, Father, the change that has occurred, our connection to you, that, Lord, shows itself. And though we may struggle, there are still yet, Lord, Trust, faith in you. We don't turn away from that. And we know, Lord, that those that have done that, they may even have been very successful in the world's terms. But what does that matter? If they really had not trusted in you in the first place, if really it had been down to their own charisma, and the power of their own imaginations. The message is simple. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, as of whom I am chief. Salvation is only in him, and we rejoice, Lord, that in him it will be completed. Amen. Thank you, Paul. Anyway, I'd like to close today with um, the benediction from Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you
from stumbling and present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, the only God, Savior through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. Have a great week.